Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the, gar- of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not truly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing God and evil. So when the woman saw that saw the tree was good for food, and that, is, uh, what, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, so who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves long coats. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Uh, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because of you, you have done this, curse are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, He shall uh, bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Uh, Cursed is is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for, your, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife names Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in, knowledge, in knowing good and evil. 
Now let his reach out his hand and take hand also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he paced the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guide the way to the tree of life. So the second passage is from Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, uh, to the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, and who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gifts is not like the trappers, uh, for it many die through one man's trappers, and uh, much, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of one, that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass uh, brought condemnation, but the free gifts following many trespasses uh, brought justification for it because of one man's trespass, uh, death reigned through that one man. Much more with those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gifts of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation uh, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. Now the law came to, to increase the trespass, uh, but where sins increase, grace abundant all the more. So that as sins reigns in death, uh, grace all my reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. Lord Jesus, without you all things droop, decay and die. But in you we live safe, strong and mighty. As now we cover our bodies with these garments, so, O Lord, cover and clothe us with yourself, especially our souls, for you are the garment of our salvation and the cloak of our righteousness. As we read and hear your word this morning, may you be glorified honored and praised. We pray this in your mighty and beautiful saving name. Amen. Can you think of a relatively small event that has forever shaped human history? I think it's very easy for us to think of big events that shaped big history, such as the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which sparked simmering tensions leading to World War I, or the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which led to the inclusion of the United States in World War II. But can you think of something smaller, a relatively small and personal event that's had far-reaching global impact? Maybe you'd think about Sir Isaac Newton, who, as legend has it, was sitting under an apple tree when one of the apples broke off and bombed him on the head 
which got him thinking about the nature of gravity and that radically shifted science forever. But you'd be hard pressed to go past the event that we have recorded for us in our little passage today. A little innocuous event that happens all over the world every day, eating of fruit. And from that, we have war between nations, war in our relationships, struggle and toil in work and life, internal struggles with fear and shame, the slowing down of our bodies in age, in de death and decay. We see it all around us. We experience this daily across gender, across race, across generations and millennia, and all because of this one little act. This, how could this, this simple act of taking and eating cause so much untold devastation and destruction? Well, as we look into our passage and answer it, let's begin by remembering where we are. We had a break last weekend for Easter, and before that we started in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw God powerfully create everything, good, uh, created a good and ordered world. And then in Genesis 2, we saw God personally create humanity to enjoy his presence and do his work in the world. And then as we open up our passage today, we begin with a God-dishonoring conversation. As we'll see, God is dishonored here in a number of different ways. Firstly, we get introduced to a new character to the story. The serpent's appearance here is pretty random, sudden and unexplained. Perhaps to Adam and Eve, he was just another part of another creature in creation. But we're told something from the start that there isn't something, there's something not quite right about all this. You see that there in verse 1. The serpent is described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. It's a small and subtle detail, but it indicates to the reader that there is danger ahead. Something's not quite right with this creature. And then as the conversation carries on, we discover our fears are, are well-founded. The, the motivations of this serpent are evil. Uh, given everything that the, at the end of Genesis 1 that was created very good, how, how could this creature with evil intent now appear? Well, we're not actually told why or how or when evil came into creation. The chapter here is silent on it. So we must be careful not to speculate or try to create some timelines. What we can know from the rest of the Bible is that the serpent here is Satan. That link is made for us very clearly in the book of Revelation that we preached on only a few months ago. However, the focus in this chapter is not on who this serpent is, but on his words. Not necessarily on his identity or how he came into being. And notice his first words in verse 1. Read it again with me at the end of verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the question itself sounds fairly innocent at first. But notice how the question starts. Notice how the serpent refers to God simply as God. You see, in Genesis chapter 1... If you flick back in your Bibles, you notice as you just glance over the chapter that it's God who creates everything over each day. But then as you flip to chapter 2, and in particular chapter 2 verse 4, now we're introduced to the Lord God. The Lord there in capitals, which signals to us that this is referring to Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. The one who covenanted personally with his people. Notice how, through the rest of chapter 2, as you glance over the verses, every reference to God is the Lord God. When man and woman are made 
intimately, when they are placed there in the Garden of Eden, when they are naked and not ashamed, it is Yahweh who is with them. His personal presence is with, is with them and they know him. But now notice in verse 1, the serpent drops God's personal name and instead simply refers to him as Elohim, God, a distant kind of powerful being. This is purposeful. It creates distance between the, the people and their God. And notice, disastrously, that Eve copies the language of the serpent in chapter 3, verse 3. Throughout this short conversation in verses 1 to 5, Yahweh's name is not mentioned. Distance is created between God and his people. As Eve begins to answer the serpent, we see the root of sin. We see in this conversation where all sin begins and how it flowers grotesquely. Close analysis here will pay off. First, she copies Satan's wording. She also drops Yahweh's name. Second, when she repeats this, the command of God, there's also again something missing. Notice how she repeats the commands of God and compare it to what God actually says. God gave a positive command. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But there's, there's generosity there. This, isn't, this is not just mere permission. God is offering a buffet, a smorgasbord to eat from. Yet see how Eve repeats the phrase. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You notice how she neglects or she, she drops out the words surely and every? Her words make it sound like God is stingy. You know, sometimes we think that it's, you know, it's, it's okay to, to not be so picky with our words when we're talking about God and theology. Why can't we just focus on grace and love? But here's a warning from this passage. In exact words, in exact words, can shrink and discount God's goodness and generosity. It seems like such a little thing though, right? So what if we get our words inexact? But in this situation, it has disastrous consequences. Because like a series of increasing size dominoes, this leads, this little act leads to bigger things falling over. You see, next Eve then adds to God's command. Not only does she think he's being stingy, but he's also mean. They can't eat the fruit of the tree and they can't touch it either. You will look in vain through Genesis 1 and 2 to find any command that says do not touch the fruit. So not only does she take from God's word, but she also becomes the first legalist. She adds to the commands of God. At this point, the serpent senses his opening and goes on the attack. He unwraps the temptation fully in verses 4 and 5. But what is the temptation that he puts before her? Firstly, he tells an outright lie. You will not surely die. Um, God said pretty clearly back in chapter 2 verse 17, you shall surely die. The lie here calls into question God's trustworthiness. God is lying to you. But the lie by itself, it would not have been enough. I, I wonder if the serpent had just said that one line, if he had just floated that out there, if after a few seconds of thinking, Adam, even Adam would have snapped out of it and said, hang on, wait a minute. But he continues his attack. 
God is lying to you. And you know what else? He's holding back something good from you. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 5 again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he goes back again to this question of the good of God's goodness. Now he's really playing on her unbelief and doubt. She's already started to question it. She's already spoken in a way to suggest that God is stingy. And so the serpent strums those strings again to get that sound resonating in her heart. And then he gives them a rather strange temptation. You will be like God. Now this is actually quite strange. When you think about it, they are already like God. They are made in his image, his image bearers, presenting God to the world, unlike any other creature in creation. They already know what is good and evil because God has already told them. It is good to eat of these many, many trees, bad to eat of that one tree. The serpent here is tempting them with something they already have, God-likeness and the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is actually very familiar that's a familiar tactic from the serpent. Remember when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And the final temptation is to bring Jesus up to a high mountain, overlooking all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says to Jesus, bow down to me and all of these kingdoms I will give to you. But isn't Jesus the creator of everything? Doesn't the Creator own everything they create? So don't these kingdoms already belong to Jesus? Well, yes. So what is Satan tempting Jesus with? Something he already has. But he twists it in a way so as to make it sound like you don't have it. This would be like FOMO, the, the fear of missing out. Uh, of getting that new iPhone. And so what do you do? You line up at the Apple store for hours before it opens just to make sure that you're first in line to get the new iPhone. But you know what? It's already in your hands. This temptation, however, worked the first time. So why not try it again the second time on Jesus? Worked here. Before we move on though, see how God has been dishonored? In, these, in this conversation, his personal name has been dropped. We've got creating distance between him and his people. His goodness and generosity are not just doubted by Eve, but attacked by Satan. God is holding back something good from you, he says. And instead of listening to the creator, Eve listens to the creature. And all, that, all of that leads to rebellion. Notice in verses 6 and 7 how the word and is repeated eight times right that repetition forces us to reduce our speed and watch these movements unfold in slow motion read it with me again in verses six and seven and see it unfold so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, our reaction is highlighted here. And with every moment we are drawn in as the reader, our hearts beat faster as we see this devastating action play out. Eve looks at the fruit and desires it to make her wise. She seeks wisdom, but instead of beginning with the fear of the Lord, she grasps for wisdom wisdom by rejecting the Lord. And then in verse 6, we get a, a twist. Surprise, surprise. Her husband has been standing there all along silently. There's an old saying that used to go, when Adam was away, Eve went astray. And that is just not true. Adam was standing there silently all along. Remember, Adam's job was to work and keep the garden. The word keep there also carries along with it the meaning of guard. Adam here, we see Adam here, uh, sorry, here we see Adam's failure. He failed to guard the garden against the serpent. He failed to guard Eve against this God dishonoring conversation. Now Eve herself isn't innocent either. Her words make a mess of things and she should have been on guard alongside Adam. She was his helper. But notice in verse 7 that only when Adam eats, both their eyes were open. That's a curious chronological detail. This is why we see that this is, this is why we say that this is Adam's sin. He is the head of the relationship. As the husband, his role in this marriage was to lead. He was given the instructions and then his job was to pass them on to Eve. And her role was to be a helper. See, there is a actually a divine order in creation in Genesis chapter 2. God is first, Adam is the head, Eve is the helper, and both together are to have dominion over creation. But here in Genesis 3, the order is reversed. A creature has dominion over the woman who leads her husband to rebelling against God. And see how the promise the serpent made just does not come true. And this is like all temptation. It always holds out a lot. It promises a lot, but it always fails to deliver. It sets up great expectations, but fails to meet them. Their eyes are open and their first response is fear and shame. They they recognize they are naked and they are filled with shame and they hide. They are embarrassed that something is horribly wrong. And the only thing they can think of to do is sew together some fig leaves to cover themselves up. We know what that is like, don't we? We all know that sense of fear and shame, that sense of embarrassment so much that we hide. We put on a good face before others. We project that life is fine and everything is good. When we've done something wrong, again, we try and save face before others. Instead of being open about our weakness, we hide it. Because we don't, we are afraid that our reputation will take a hit. We're afraid that people will look down on us and think less of us. And so we cover it up. All of that has the same root here. All of those negative actions begin with 
rejection and rebellion against God. You see, this story in Genesis 3 doesn't just explain why our world is so messed up, though it does. It also explains the path that we all travel when we sin. It's the same story over and over again. We, we do not believe what is true about God. We may even buy into a lie about God. And then when we are tempted to be like God and defining good and what is evil, what is right and wrong, but the end result is always the same. Fear and shame and broken relationships with each other and with God. Let me give a brief example of this anger. When I get angry, I walk down this well-worn path that we see here. I start with unbelief. I do not believe that God is good because in this moment and this situation, this moment and situation is getting me so angry and so worked up. What is actually good is what will actually be, what will be to have my particular way. And because things are not going my way, it is not good. Therefore, God is not good. If he was good, he would have things my way. Then I believe the temptation and the lie that I should be like God. If I express my wrath and my anger, everything will be set straight. But the outcome is always the same. It never works. I may get immediate results, but always at the expense of my relationships. I get very short-term gain for a very clear long-term loss. Fear and shame inevitably follows. I feel the shame of having outburst in that way. And I can sense the fear in particularly my children. I can sense that they are afraid of me. And I can sense their shame in wanting to hide. And I'm afraid, and because they're afraid of disappointing me. It's all a mess. And then Adam and Eve hear something. They hear footsteps approaching. You notice in verse 8 that it isn't just God that they hear, but Yahweh. The name Yahweh returns again. Their loving personal creator approaches them in the cool of the day. It seems like uh, to have been a habit that God was in. To visit with his people at the end of the day but this time man and woman hide as though you could ever hide from the creator and we get a whole series of questions from verse 9 to 13 Yahweh asking question after question and why does he do that let's be clear it's not because he doesn't know God does know what has happened all right he is the all-powerful all-knowing God but these questions are like the Questions of a parent asking a child what they have done wrong when the parent already knows what they have done. He already knows the answer. You ask the questions to give your child the opportunity to respond honestly. This is what is happening here. Opportunity after opportunity for Adam and Eve to be open and honest about where they have gone, how they have failed, how they have disobeyed and doubted God. Opportunities to repent, to say sorry and and seek forgiveness. But do they take these opportunities? Disappointingly, no. Notice that God calls first to Adam. Again, he is the head. He's the one responsible for what has happened. And notice how in verse 10, Adam speaks in the singular rather than the plural. Instead of speaking about we, he speaks only of himself. And then he admits that he was afraid and hid at the sound of God walking towards him. 
But when he is asked if he ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat, have a look at what he says in verse 12. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Wow, you see what Adam has done here? He shifts the blame away from himself and onto both God and the woman. The last time Adam spoke about Eve, he broke out in poetry and how glorious she was. Now he's blaming God for giving him this woman. So it's actually God's fault that he ate the fruit. It's also Eve's fault because she gave him some of the fruit and he ate. I'm innocent in all of this, he cries. And things don't get better when God turns to Eve. She shifts the blame onto the serpent, which is true. But look at the question again that God asks her in verse 13. He asks her, what is this that you have done? This is another opportunity for her to confess, but she misses it. You could say that what was promised to them set up great expectations. And they were not only unmet. What actually happened led to terrible things. The de-godding of God promised freedom, but instead it led to fear and shame and disaster. All sin begins with the de-godding of God, taking him down from his rightful place and trying to insert ourselves into his. But it's led to fear and shame and disaster. Let me ask you, how are you feeling as you hear all that? It's pretty disappointing, isn't it? As we move on, God turns his attention on the trio, the man, the woman, and the snake. And he judges them. He curses them. He speaks a word of promise, but in the negative. We're going to start with the woman first. We're going to go down emotionally with the curses before making our way back up with some of the promises. In verse 16, God curses the woman in two ways. Two ways that strike at her, the heart of her distinctiveness. Both curses involve relationships and those most dear to her. First, she will experience the multiplication of pain in childbearing. Now, childbearing also has a sense of child rearing. It's a giving birth to and raising up children. The entire uh, parenting experience will now be filled with pain. Parenting is hard work now, and now, especially for mothers, there is the added curse of increased pain and, and difficulty. Ask any of the mothers at church, and they'll tell you it's hard painful work. Work cursed by rebellion against God. Friends, this is one of the reasons why putting children at the center of your family and your marriage is fraught with danger. Children are at the center when it's their needs and their wants that take precedence. It's their future and their well-being which shapes and directs the entire focus of the family and the marriage. We put them at the center because we believe that if we fulfill their needs and wants, then it will give us satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose and meaning. But the curse here means raising up children is painful enough without the added burden of asking your children to provide you with significance. Kids can't do that for you and your marriages will suffer in the long run for it. Children are a blessing but do not make them the center of your family. Raising up children is cursed. 
The second curse in verse 16 is that her desire shall be for her husband. Now, in recent years, the ESV has added the words, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, to make clear what is meant by the word desire. Uh, We can work that out as well when we go to Genesis chapter 4, and we see that same word used. Take a look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see it there. Sin desires Cain. It desires, its desire is contrary to him. Sin desires to dominate him, to consume him, to control him. Same back here in Genesis chapter 3. The curse on the woman is that she shall desire to dominate and control her husband. Now the final phrase in verse 16 is actually a bit ambiguous. It could be taken negatively or neutrally. Uh, Negatively, it could mean that her husband will rule over her in a harsh and demeaning way, perhaps reacting harshly uh, to her attempt to dominate. Or it could be a neutral phrase, calling back God's original and good design that husband should be the head of the marriage and his wife would be his helper. Now the wife's curse will be to push against God's good design but you cannot keep doing that forever. Given the nature of sin, it's likely to be a distortion of the rule. And this will be one of the tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Ongoing, damaging conflict between husband and wife, driven by sinful behavior of both rebellion against their God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. For the single women in the church, I wonder if this is a double curse. See, you're built with the natural desire for marriage and family, but unmet, it becomes a painful burden. And then the desire is also tainted with the truth that marriage and children are also cursed by sin and God. So are women simply doomed to living out this curse forever? Come back to that in a moment. In verse 17, God moves focus to the man. You'll notice that the curses given to Adam are longer and weightier. Again, reflecting God's concern that the husband is the head and leader of the family. His failure brings not only curse on him, but on creation and every human being after him, both male and female. Why? Because of who Adam was created to be. This moment reminds us of why we speak of this moment as Adam's sin. Notice in verse 17 that God starts by giving the particular reason for Adam's curse. Because you listen to the wife, the voice of your wife. This is not saying that husbands should never listen to their wives, don't misapply it that way. But this reason given is because Adam, because God commanded Adam. He was to listen to God, but instead he listened to his wife. The reversal of roles of creation are highlighted here as foundational, the foundational reason for his judgment. So what is his curse? Well, there are three. First, the ground is cursed because of Adam. He, the ground he was to work is now cursed to produce thorns and thistles. The death and decay we see in our world is a direct result of Adam's sin. The floods that we experienced in Brisbane a few weeks ago, the drought that often hits our lands, the weeds that grow wildly out of control, all these and many more are signs that our world is groaning under the curse of humanity's rebellion against God. 
the world created, the whole created order, not only has the fingerprints of God's goodness all over it, but it's also stained by chaos and destruction and sin and decay. The second curse is that work now becomes toilsome. At the end of verse 17, it will be pain that he is to eat, in pain that he is to eat. In verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat. I'm not sure that this means that work in the garden was easy, but now the pain and hardship of work has been multiplied. Probably the best description of hardship in work comes from Solomon in Ecclesiastes. There Solomon writes that work sometimes feels pointless because eventually you might have to leave your work to another person and who knows if they'll do a good job of it. Sometimes you'll, you'll, work, you'll work really hard but someone else will enjoy the benefits of your work. Sometimes work is filled with vexation and anxiety that keeps you up at night. Work is cursed with hardship all over. It is toil. This is why you cannot make work your identity. When work becomes an idol, that the thing that you find your security and your significance in, it will eventually let you down because work is cursed with toil. Work will keep demanding more and more from you that, and give you very little back. As the old saying goes, nobody on their deathbeds will wish that they had spent more time in the office. But believers may regret not spending more time on their spiritual growth, more time nurturing their marriage and family, more time serving others at church. But when work becomes the center of your life, when it becomes the thing that you serve or the thing that you fear and so serve, it will suck you into a whirlpool of never-ending toil. The third curse is the hardest of all, death. And in and and of verse nineteen and, and and sorry end of verse nineteen, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is described here in language of reminiscent of Genesis chapter two, but it's a reversal of that. Instead of being formed out of the dust, now humanity will return to dust, like someone hitting the rewind button while watching a movie and things moving then in reverse, and so. Because of Adam, creation is cursed, hardship hits work, and he ushers in inevitable death for all of us. Is it all bad news though? Here is where we go back up to verse 14 and take a look at the curse on the serpent and some of the good news which is mixed in. First we read about the humiliation of the serpent. He is to crawl on his belly and eat dust. This is a picture of shame and disgrace, especially above everything else in the created order. To crawl on his belly and eat dust is to say that the serpent is now cursed to be the lowliest of all creation. <coughs> but in verse 15, there is something unique here too. God says he will put enmity between him and the woman. Enmity is ongoing hostility. There will be a war, ongoing war between the serpent and in particular, the offspring of the woman. The word offspring there is also the word seed in the rest of the Bible. It is this future seed, a future child who will do significant damage to the serpent. See it again at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now a bruise doesn't sound that bad. Bruises for us are just uncomfortable muscle soreness, but the word for bruise here carries a sense of a bigger 
wound. And so the NIV says to crush and strike. This is probably closer to the idea the serpent will hurt this future child. To strike at the heel can be a damaging blow, but the child will crush the head of the serpent, a devastatingly mortal blow. The damage to the child will be significant, but it will pale in comparison to the destruction of the serpent. Here is a promise from God, what some people call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel message. Among all the curses in this section is this wondrous promise, the forces of evil that have corrupted the world and humanity will one day be defeated by the offspring of this woman. And there is still more grace to come at the end here as well. In verse 20 we read that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life giver. Why does Adam name her this? You know, for all of Adam's faults, I think he's a good listener. Sure, in the conversation with the serpent, his good listening skills did him no good. But here, he's been listening to God's curses and he's picked up the line about the offspring crushing the serpent. Eve is named so because... Eve is, Eve is named in this way because Adam has heard the proto-gospel. Maybe he names her better than he realizes. Eve will not only be the mother of all living beings to come, but she will be the mother of all who live through her head-crushing offspring. I think this idea is beautifully captured in this painting called Mary Consoles Eve. Mary, carrying the weight of all her guilt, even still carrying the fruit, touching the belly of the Saviour who will come and crush the serpent's head. The naming of Eve is a wonderful, gospel-grounded and hope-filled name. And there is one final grace in this passage. In verse 21, God gives garments to Adam and Eve. The ones they made for themselves weren't the best quality. Fig leaves are not known for their longevity when sewn together as clothing. So God gives them new clothing, garments made of animal skin. See, God still cares for his people. Though they broke their relationship with him, though they suffer the consequences of their sin, God is still involved in their lives. The coverings here also hint at something more to come in the future, a system by which the shame of God's people will be covered. And for that to happen, another animal sacrifice has to take place. But grace only goes so far for the moment. God knows that if Adam and Eve remain in the garden, then they will continue to have access to the tree of life. If they do, and they continuously eat of its fruit, then they will live forever. Imagine for a moment sinners who live forever. The chaos and damage they would wreak on each other in this world. And so, as if halfway through the thought and its logical conclusion, God acts. He sends them out of the garden. He drives them out east and places cherubim at the entrance to the guard to guard the way in. See, where Adam failed to guard the garden from the serpent, now the cherubim will guard the way in. And in exile from the garden, Adam and Eve will now age and physically die. But they are also away from the presence of God. Spiritual death awaits them on the outside. This mess of sin results in God's fair and right judgment, curse, death and exile. It's pretty doom and gloom, isn't it? 
there are some deep, there are some words of hope, but the final note of exile, it makes us wonder if that will be the last word. How will this situation be fixed? Will God's good design remain a distant dream, never to be realized for more than five minutes? Well, of course it won't. We already know the ending. We've seen it in the book of Revelation only weeks ago. We heard it again over Easter. Jesus is the offspring, that head crusher who defeats Satan and death. He's the only one who reverses the He's the one who also reverses the curses. And though it's a little bit too much to explain in detail here, in this final part, Jesus changes everything. He changes how we parent. He changes how husbands and wives relate to each other in marriage. He changes how we view marriage and even says uh, that singleness is a good thing. He changes how we view work. He reverses death. And when Jesus returns, the earth will be set free from its groanings. Jesus changes everything and he does it all by obeying his father. Romans chapter 5 explains this by contrasting Adam and Jesus. Through Adam's sin, sin itself came into the world. Through Adam, death through sin came to everyone. But through Jesus, his act of obedience led to leads to justification, to right standing and innocent standing before God. Through one act of disobedience, condemnation came to everyone. But through one man's obedience, many are made righteous, able to stand before God, holy and pure. The point of this is to say that each man gives us a picture of life now versus life and what it could be. There really are two ways to live. We could live like Adam and just keep doing what feels natural. Live for yourself, your own desire to be wise, to act like God, determining what is good and right for you. But that path leads to disaster. But the alternative way is to, li- to live is found in Jesus. See, only through Jesus can we find real joy power to overcome fear and shame and eternal life with God forever. The joy-filled, purposeful life we were created for is found in Jesus and it's found as a free gift. There's no good deeds outweighing the bad to try and earn your way to get there. There's no ritual or ceremony to attain it. You simply have to believe and trust. Will you do that today? The events of Genesis chapter 3, they radically shaped our world like no other event in human history. They held sway and influence over our world like no other event. No other event until that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross was an event that reshaped everything that happened in Genesis 3. The bad news of Genesis 3 is that humanity has seriously rebelled against God and We all know what that is like. We have all experienced not only its effects today, but we've all experienced the same journey of sin in our own hearts. And if we realize that and if we experience that, then we know that there is no hope apart from the good news. The good news here in Genesis 3 that culminates at the cross of Jesus, that God is not done with humanity. And he's not done with us. And we will see that if we receive the free gift by faith and trust. Let's put our trust and faith in Jesus. 
the one man who changes everything. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that despite the rebellion and rejection of you here in this word, you made a way to come back to you. You made a way through your son for us to be reconciled to you and not by anything that we could do. Help us to see, Father, ourselves in this picture in Genesis 3. Help us to see our own sin, our own rebellion, our unbelief that leads to temptation, that leads to wanting to be God of our own lives. Help us to see that and to recognize that we are slaves to that. And then help us to see Jesus, the one who completely changes it all, who sets us free from the bondage of slavery, who removes the condemnation that we are under. Father, do all of this, we pray, so that you'll help us to see how good and generous and kind and merciful and gracious you really are. Help us to see the truth of who you are and to no longer believe in lies and to live for lies. Father, do this work in us, we pray, for your glory, your honor, your praise, and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah.